0: Podcast Network Asia. Hi, this is Michael Waits, and welcome back to the Asia Tech Podcast, on which we talk about all things Asia and all things tech. Today, we are joined by Claudia Colonis. Did I get that right, by the way?
1: Yes, correct.
0: Okay, and the founder of Pluong. Did I get that right?
1: Yes, yes, exactly right.
0: Awesome. Claudia, it's great to have you on the show. How are you doing?
1: Really good. Thanks so much, Michael, for having me. Really appreciate you taking the time.
0: I cannot tell you how much I appreciate this. I think I told you this before we recorded, but I struggled to get female founders on the show. And I just love the fact that you said, yes, I really appreciate it.
1: Oh, great. Good to hear. Glad to be first.
0: Thank you. Not a first, but definitely it's hard for me. We can talk about that why offline or online, depending on what you want to do, but it's hard anyway. Can you give our audience a bit of your background for context?
1: Yeah, sure. Thanks, Michael. So, I'm Claudia. So, you know, I grew up in Indonesia. I grew up in Jakarta actually. So, I've been in the financial services industry for many, many years. So, okay. um a little bit of context and background. My family business has been in the financial services industry since the 97-98 days. Oh, wow. So, given a family business background in general, I've been pretty much involved in the business since I was 16 or 17. I think it's something that I've been really passionate about. And yeah, project or financial services in general has been something that I really look forward to do as part of my daily business. So I actually went to Harvard Business School a few years ago. And when I was actually at business school, I met a professor that actually taught a class called Business at the Base of the Pyramid. So I kind of learned a little bit about financial inclusion and um, thinking about things like, how do I actually create innovation that would solve problems at the base of the pyramid? And that's actually how it got me really excited about doing my own FinTech startup. So with the context of having my family business, traditionally in the financial services industry, and kind of having an idea with, alongside my co-founder at business school, on creating a solution for business at the base of the pyramid that's how we kind of came about the idea of Fluon.
0: i love this idea i think i may make that the title of the show actually business at the base of the pyramid what do you think made you interested in taking that class do you know what i mean because if you're at harvard anyway you've got to be super interested in finance you're, if your family background is like that it's an interesting choice no
1: Yes. um, So, you know, I really grew up in Indonesia. So I think a lot of people who grew up in developed markets sometimes do not get to see a lot about what's really happening on the ground and what poverty really means. Versus I think one of the benefits that I've had growing up is that really, you know, I've done a lot of charity, worked with a lot of uh, women communities specifically. And one thing that I realized quite a bit growing up was that financial services can truly change people's lives in an impactful way and in a much longer term and sustainable way. So financial inclusion has always been very dear to my family in general, given our family business is in financial services. And I think this has always been something that just generally resonated. When I found out this class actually was being taught by Michael Chu, who is effectively one of the big pioneers of microfinance in Latin America. He is an incredible uh, professor in general. I I just knew I had to take the class because it's so relevant to what I'm interested in.
0: I got it. It's got to be inspiring, actually, to sit in that class. And the idea probably is that a bunch of the other students in that class are also inspired by the same things, no?
1: exactly obviously because michael chu himself you know is is a legend in the fi- microfinance world Absolutely. i think that just tends to attract a lot of others who are interested in fintech so actually there's been several people from that class that actually ended up doing their own fintech startups in their respective markets so it it was it's been pretty interesting
0: in a way, right, if you have the resources to do it and you have the compunction to do it, what, after you leave that class, you almost feel compelled to do it, don't you?
1: Yes, exactly. And I think one of the biggest debates in the class actually is around the Muhammad Yunus model, which is kind of that nonprofit type model versus uh, creating businesses that actually create shareholder value. So right. businesses that can go public or exit, et cetera. So the whole tenet of Michael Chu's class was actually around how do you actually create businesses that help solve problems at the base of the pyramid, but ultimately can also bring value to shareholders, et cetera. And in his view, that's actually more scalable and sustainable compared to businesses like microfinance that rely on nonprofit organizations to raise money. So I think that's been the kind of the tenet and the way I've looked at businesses in general that, you know, I think a lot of people think when you're actually doing things related to financial inclusion, you should be, you know, in a way very socially driven, but also not so profit driven. Hmm. And I think that's kind of been proven wrong and and in many many cases actually and so that's kind of the whole premise of the class but isn't it
0: the case that if you attack by building a business that looks at the base of the pyramid and by doing that in sort of the fintech and financial inclusion space that by helping those people and we can talk about this in more detail later but by helping those people and teaching them about finance and financial inclusion aren't you raising them off the base of the pyramid in other words trying to bring them up to where the rest of society is so they don't have to live in poverty that's not only a social good but it can also be quite profitable as well and as they get wealthier they can buy more products buy more insurance buy a car all these other things that are beneficial to everybody right because a wealthier society in general is better for everybody no
1: Exactly. So I think we see examples of this in countries like China, where their growth is really driven by the government's very active hand in actually lifting people out of poverty. Right. Whether it's through financial inclusion or through housing, and I think that's been kind of uh, very interesting in the sense that if you actually wanted to lift people out of poverty in a scalable manner and in a much shorter time horizon. You actually need to raise a lot of capital. And in order to raise a lot of capital to do that, you actually are better off being a profit driven business versus solely relying on raising money from foundations or nonprofit organizations.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So
1: I think that's kind of driven my uh, inspiration for Fluang.
0: Right. And China's actually a really good example of this. We can talk about government structure as much as we want, but in the last 25 years, the Chinese have taken somewhere between 700 and 800 million people out of poverty. And they'll do another 400 million people in the next 10 or 15 years. So good on them for that, right? It's been a workable model for them.
1: And I think if you look at China, the public-private partnership, so kind of playing on the same model of creating very, very profitable businesses like Ant Financial, for example. And this level of public-private partnership really playing out in terms of being able to provide very, very significant shareholder value and simultaneously also solving that financial inclusion problem. So we can see that model really take shape in China.
0: And does the same thing happen in Indonesia? I want to get back to Pluang as well, right? Maybe first tell me in your mind, what is Pluang today? And we'll talk later about what it's going to be in the future, but what is it today and Maybe is there a way to do this public-private partnership like you've seen in China, in Indonesia? Does that work as well?
1: Exactly. So Pulong is actually a wealth tech company. So we are, however, not just a wealth tech company. We are actually a financial services company first. So we truly believe that the way to solve the problem of financial inclusion in countries where you know, a lot of financial products don't exist yet, it's actually to innovate on the financial product itself. So the goal is really simply that we want to not only provide access through distribution, but also provide access through creation of financial products in the country. So in order to be able to do that, right, it does require participation from many parties. One, the regulatory bodies that regulate financial services in general second obviously big players like gojack etc who are our partners and help us in actually bringing financial education to the forefront of people and third companies startups like us who are willing to actually take the time to innovate and push the envelope on what exists So I think this kind of like environment exists in Indonesia, and we can see that there are many companies, in fact, like Gojek, Bukalapak, who actually are really lifting people out of poverty at the same time, really bringing a lot of shareholder value. So that is really, really playing out in the country.
0: So what is your product design process like? Right, You want to design your own products. How does the team determine like which products are good to go today and which ones you'll wait in, to do until later? Do you know what I mean?
1: Yeah, that's always a really tough thing for us, frankly. And there's always trade-offs um, One right. because we are trying to innovate on financial products. There's always kind of a lifetime versus just really distributing something that exists. Right. So for us, we really look at other countries and we look at what's kind of best in class in terms of financial products in other countries for example one of the things that we've been really trying to solve is you know how do we make t plus zero money market funds right so it sounds very simple it sounds it's kind of normal in other countries right but when you actually have a lack of infrastructure in a country like indonesia It took a lot of effort, joint effort, between so many different parties. So that's kind of one of the projects that we we had been working on for the past year and will be launching very soon. So these are the kinds of things that we try to solve as entrepreneurs. We try to take different parties, different stakeholders together to to the table and actually try to solve problems in an innovative way.
0: So I get excited when I hear words like T plus zero. (laughs) Which is strange, I think, but so I used to work at Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs and I started my career in the back office, right? Looking at controlling and settlements and then into technology and then into trading. So I understand the entire path of a trade, right? It's very interesting for me. Why was T plus zero money market so important? In other words, why does it have to be like, why not T plus one? Why was that so important?
1: Yeah, I think it's a context of what we've seen happen in China, how actually mutual funds provided that kind of Channel to replace banks in many ways. Yep. So I think a lot of users are typically not aware that you know mutual funds can return much higher interest or you know balances for the user right over the long run. And the reason, the biggest barrier that we've seen in general is that when a user needs the money right then and there especially for people who may not be so mass affluent or wealthy, they really do need the money right then and there. Got it. So I think giving that frictionless experience to a user is so crucial to actually getting adoption of the product because no matter how good your product is, if there's a lot of friction to using it, you're never really going to get traction. That's kind of been the philosophy for us whenever we think about products and how we create them
0: right i mean i like to make analogies because i think it's easier for people to understand so let's talk about friction in another vertical right if i ordered a pizza today and i got it on friday that's friction right i'm hungry now yeah so i just want to put it in that kind of context so people can understand that's what friction Mm -hmm. means just when you make it frictionless and seamless it makes it so much easier and technology actually should allow you to do that compounding obviously from a financial investment perspective is really important but people I think are dismayed by the fact that if they only put a dollar in today and a dollar in next month and a dollar in next month, that it's not gonna have any impact, right? Like what role do you as a team play in this financial literacy, right? Because first you have to understand what the point is before you can actually be included in the products. Does that make sense? Like, Do you do any teaching? Do you do any blogging around this stuff?
1: Yeah, so what's really interesting in Indonesia, and we're not sure this is just unique to Indonesia or Southeast Asia in general, but at least in Indonesia we've seen that majority of users have actually gotten their first financial education experience through social media and by social media it's specifically instagram and facebook (laughs) so it's really interesting because i think it becomes a double-edged sword right there on one end really you, you can i think have a lot more impact and reach in a much lower cost way using social media but on the other edge of the sword is really, there's also a lot of misleading information that right. exists, social right. media So I think, you know, for us, Gluang specifically, we do really work very closely with partners like Gojak. We also are partners with Dana we work with them on creating actually content and distributing it to the forefront of our users. You do, and okay in the context of Indonesia, distribution of content is actually even more important than actually just the content itself.
0: For sure. And who do you think are the best content distribution partners? What is the biggest online distribution? Is it, do I have this name like Kumparan? Kumparan?
1: Yes. Kumparan is definitely one of them in media channel. Right. And I think a lot of, The biggest channels, I would say, are actually the influencers in Indonesia. So So they have a lot of significant influence and impact on the decision-making of a lot of millennial users, especially. So we work with a lot of guys that actually are very popular on the social media world. And we think can kind of build this more fun approach to learning about financial and inclusion and investing.
0: So I want to ask you this question about a partnership with Gojek and it can be Bukalapak as well, but Gojek's numbers are pretty easy to find. They've got 170 million users, 2 million drivers, let's say at least, right? And you know, a bunch of hundreds of thousands of food partners in Indonesia, right? If every one, if just every, and here's the, here's the idea that I've always had. Right. But obviously I'm not in this space, so I I can't do it myself. But if every month, every user literally just gave a dollar, it's $170 million a month. If every driver just gave a dollar, it's $2 million a month. And you could actually create, I know you know this, but I just want to say this to people that maybe haven't thought about this at $2 million a month, it's 24, almost $25 million a year. You could literally create a mutual fund just for them
1: exactly
0: does that make sense so you're working on products like that because your ability to acquire capital is so cheap because you're already you know gojek is already paying them if they just do like a salary withdrawal like they did for me at goldman sachs you can create a gigantic pool of money really quickly and then start making dividend payments to people that didn't even know that was possible
1: exactly so gojek is a very important partner for us. And we are very closely tied in working with various projects with them. And I think it's been a really huge blessing for us because, you know, number one, it's really allowed us to kind of experiment and figure out what users really want um, very quickly, um, alongside them. And two, really, as you mentioned, you know, get the kind of brand presence, recognition and distribution that they already have. So we can see something similar happened in China with Alipay, where once actually wallet usage goes through the roof, effectively, the next kind of frontier that people want is actually wealth management, right? So whether it's mutual funds or um, gold or any other products like ETFs. So I think that's where we really think about how can we actually create this experience that is a lot easier for someone to digest. So a really right. good example is we just launched a product um, with Goja called Auto Invest. So people are able to, you know, automatically set up kind of like auto debit features into their wallet that will allocate, whether it's a dollar, $2 a month into the gold savings product, for example. Right. right. So I think these are the kinds of things and and you know our culture is all around experimentation we really believe in trying to figure out what people want and how do we actually reduce frictions as much as possible for users
0: yeah i mean it's a really interesting database of people to be able to access 170 or 180 million people you can actually give them surveys right ask them what they want that's why i asked about the product design process earlier there's gonna be some percentage of your users that don't even know what a financial product is, but the ones that do may say, if you can make this easier for me, then I would save more money and had to have the benefits of compounding. That would be a great way to decide, at least at some level, no?
1: Exactly. So I think um, there's two kind of aspects and dimensions. Number one, I think that a lot of people use Ant uh, financial as an example of a success story in the wealth tech world, but they don't really understand that actually It's not just purely distribution that helped financial win the market. Right. It's actually also the uniqueness of the product that they launched. In particular, actually, there was only one product that they launched that actually resulted in the huge success that they had, right? So I think it's about really thinking about this trade-off between, you know, not necessarily a marketplace model, but thinking about how can you actually really innovate and create something different for your users and not just focus on solely distribution, but also on truly solving their problems, whether it's frictions on topping up or frictions related to lower returns that they're getting from their bank. So these are the kinds of things that we are always experimenting and trying to solve.
0: And do you have a data business inside your business as well? In other words, are you accumulating enough data where you can start making decisions on product as well?
1: Exactly. So we do have a data science team and it's machine learning and data science is actually really important in core to our business, especially going forward as we our team grows bigger. We do think that investing in particular is very behavior driven and it's mm. actually very preferences driven. So for instance, your taste in mutual funds could be very different than mine. Sure. Just depending on, you know, what my background is in general. Right. So we can use, we use a lot of data actually to predict these kinds of things. So we can actually get a sense of what products to launch next, or when we do launch products, which segment of users to actually really sell it to, et cetera. So asset classes grow in our platform, we do not wanna lose that kind of sense of personalization and um, close touch that we have with our users.
0: Yeah, and having actually clean data in a clean data lake and using the right MLOps platform is gonna allow you to do that in a way that old firms like just cannot do, cause they just haven't set it up and it's so hard to set up the proper data engineering and then data science stuff. It'll be interesting to see how this plays out over time as you, as you get more and more data. Do you want to know how I collaborate with some of the best brands in the world at Asia Tech Podcast? I use Podmetrics. This is the best way to connect to your favorite brands and monetize your podcast. If you are a podcaster, you can sign up now at podmetrics.co and use the referral code AsiaTechPodcast, all one word, to get full control of your show's monetization, regardless of your show's size. And if you're a brand and want to collaborate with the Asia Tech Podcast, head over to advertiser.podmetrics.co, it's spelled like it sounds, and sign up now. How do you think that designing your own products, whether it's personal or for just a whole group of people, helps you keep your cost of customer acquisition so low? Why does that matter?
1: It really, yes, exactly. So a really good question, Michael. So in general, what we found in um, China And I think this is uh, coming back to the Ant Financial story. When people actually buy or select a wealth management platform or a brokerage, it's really due to usually one or two products that they offer that do not quite exist somewhere else. So in Ant Financial's case, it's Yuipal, which was a very unique money market fund that effectively was mainly only distributed through financials platform so we we have the same kind of thesis and theory that actually financial product creation is really the the fulcrum or the crux of how you can actually sustain lower caps over time because users will come to your platform not for the app itself sure your app really will help retain those users right but actually most users will come there for specific financial products that
0: they're interested in. Do you, you just brought up a really interesting point for me. You may or may not know this, but I do an Asia InsurTech podcast where we talk very specifically about how technology is changing insurance in the region and also globally. But one of the things that these insurtechs and insurance companies have started to say is that their app experience, right? So the UI and the UX by their users is getting judged not against other insurance companies, but against amazon or tokopedia because they have mm. built this frictionless experience do you get the sense that your users are having that same feeling like wow this is just as slick as amazon or do you think they're still comparing it to other fintech apps
1: exactly right so i think as, as users are getting more and more savvy in indonesia especially and right. as you you know one of the largest facebook populations in the world And as they're actually getting more familiar with super apps like Gojek, Tokopedia, et cetera, they they have now very high expectations to how an app should look or how an app should feel and how personalized it should feel. I think that's where we really, really do think product is important. And having this kind of personalization and i think that's kind of the, been the competitive advantage of amazon right their ability to have very strong recommendation engines and creating this kind of like very strong feedback loop for their users to come right. back i think that's go is more and more expected um, by our users so to answer your question yes i think people's product specification actually goes up very very quickly as the whole country digitalizes
0: i think so is there a split a bifurcation whether it's male, female, or different locations in Indonesia, but is there a who is like the most financially underserved population, if that makes sense?
1: Yeah. So for Indonesia in particular, it's mostly women who are very, very underserved. And I think it is very similar to the thesis that a lot of microfinance institutions have as well. One of the main reasons why we actually picked gold as an initial product is because we kind of found that gold tends to be. More popular and all, very popular with women in general. Got it. And we think that women tend to actually be decision makers for in relation to savings and investing for the future in a household. Yep. The only negative to this is that you know I think women in general are have much lower education in Indonesia compared to male. Okay. So the effort required to actually educate them is a lot higher. But if you can actually educate them and you can actually involve them and include them, what we found is they are learning very quickly and they tend to be more responsible. Like For example, they're more interested in having emergency funds, rainy day funds, versus I think male counterparts are more interested in trading and very short-term profits. So we are seeing very, very different behaviors actually between um, male and female.
0: And do you see, just to stay on this topic a little bit, but do you see specific challenges for you and for women like you that are entrepreneurs in Indonesia? Do you see specific challenges there? And, and maybe you could share like a couple of stories where this is just so obvious that people wouldn't even have to ask why.
1: Yeah, so I think I've been quite lucky in a sense that really I come from a family where most women work. So I've had role models like my mother, who literally raised me at the office, (laughs) kind of like this, you know, understanding that, yeah, it's hey, it's actually okay to be a mother, have a daycare at the office and make being an entrepreneur and having children work at the same time. But I think that a lot of women in Indonesia just do not have that luxury, for example. And I think it's still very taboo in the country for women to actually work and not take care of their children at home. So I think that's a really big barrier. Mm -hmm. The other really big barrier is around, I think this expectation and this culture right now where women are expected to be a lot more demure, maybe soft-spoken and um, soft-spoken women are just more revered in general. And I think. You know, it's very difficult to be successful in a business cent- setting if you are very, very soft-spoken. Right. So I think these are the kinds of things that I'd really believe needs to be worked through and thought about more carefully in order to actually increase female participation in the country, in the in the workforce in general.
0: Were there times at the beginning of this company building where you'd walk into a room with your two, you have two co-founders. Is that right?
1: I have one co-founder, One co-founder. Yes.
0: And is that a guy or a gal? A guy. Right. So did you ever walk into a room together and they just started talking to the other co-founder?
1: That happens quite a lot, actually. Now that you mentioned, I mean, so I think for me in particular, and I encourage this for other women as well, you know, these kinds of things will always happen, especially when you're actually in emerging markets and sure. in developing countries. Right. There's kind of like two ways to approach it. One is really kind of just to be offended about it. right? Um, but the other way is really just to kind of uh, make your presence known. Right. And I think this is actually very important in a sense. The key is not to talk louder or more often. And the key is just uh, to actually Say things that matter and insightful things when the moment comes and not to try to overcompensate when things like that happen. Because as women, we will always experience this, especially probably heard things like, you know, during fundraising, etc. There's always a little bit more barrier when it comes to being female. But really, it's about how you actually react. If you overcompensate, if you react too much to it and you get offended by it, it kind of shows, and um, you will have this, you know, aura of lack of self esteem, which I think worsens the situation. So, as much as sometimes I'm aware of that, and it's obvious to me that that happens quite often. Right. I don't let it affect me, so a lot of times I don't even realize it during right. the moment. So. Yeah.
0: Fair enough. And you just brought up another really good point. You talked about capital raising. So you and the team have announced a capital raise, I believe, almost a month ago, right? March 20-something. Yes. You raised a decent amount of money from some really good investors. How does that change the way, like, how does that change the amount of pressure that's on you? How does that change the way you run the company? Or And what things can you do today that you couldn't have done before that aren't so obvious to people?
1: Yeah. So I think, the pressure is much higher. So I think a lot of people think, oh, once you've raised you know, pressure, it's, it reduces. Actually, yeah. it's the exact opposite. Completely. because Yeah, literally the exact opposite because you feel like you really need to succeed and you have a lot more people that, you know, you could potentially disappoint if you exactly. don't succeed. Exactly. So the pressures are much, much higher. Right Now, having said that, I think the biggest benefit to announcing a raise has actually been... Um, the hiring process. So, you know, I think in previous, prior to this round, when we were Series A, it is much, much harder to get the very, very top talent to actually jump ship from a stable company to join right. you. Right. Versus now, what we found even in the last month of announcing the raise, we've been able to really bring on some really strong talent, guys who, in my opinion, are really much smarter than I am, for example, right? So changing the game in terms of talent bar, for
0: right. sure. Yeah, I mean, I was talking to one of the companies in Europe that I advise and you know, they're in Zurich and it's just before you raise any money, it's almost impossible to hire people because they would, by definition, be leaving a more stable and a higher salary, right? And everybody's not built, we talked about this offline, but everybody's not built to take the risks that are associated with either being an entrepreneur or working in sort of an unstable startup, even after series A. Once you've raised a certain amount of money now, because again, you're in Asia, right? So even the most amazing developers or the amazing biz dev people, they have families, right? Exactly. And it's hard for the breadwinner, male or female, to go home and say, I'm going to quit my really stable job at company A and go work for a startup. That's a hard decision at home. But if they can say, well, they've just raised $20 million, it just changes the game for the pool of people that now can be hired. Is that fair?
1: Exactly. And I think it's got a lot to do with, in Southeast Asia in particular, the tech industry is still quite young. There Mm -hmm. hasn't been significant exits that have proven ESOP to be valuable. Right, right, right. So I think when you are a Series A startup, it's much more difficult you know, to pay some of the salaries that are required right. um, for some of the top talents as well. So it's a combination, I think, um, in general, because a lot of a lot of talent in Southeast Asia do not care about ESOP as much yet, which I think will change as we see more exits coming up that will help hiring in, tech, uh, in the startup ecosystem in general. But for now, it's not as big of a
0: drop. Right. I mean, look, we saw this in the United States in the late 70s and early 80s, right, where all these people in Seattle just started becoming millionaires because they worked at Microsoft, just regular people who instead of taking a really big salary, took a slightly smaller salary and took stock in Microsoft. And then they just started buying boats and houses and their friends were like, how did that happen? And that was all part of the ESOP, right?
1: Exactly. So as companies, big companies, I guess you've seen recently grabbed, etc., start actually exiting, I think we're going to start seeing a very different mindset in Southeast Asia. And that's actually what the tech ecosystem or the startup ecosystem needs to really grow. Talent is very, very scarce in the country. So I think that's important.
0: It is, it is. Do you ever see a a possibility of Pluang... You know Indonesia is such a big country, right? So asking Indonesian-based companies if they're going to expand externally is kind of a double-edged sword, as as most things are. But do you see Gojek going and doing it, right? Do you see the opportunity for your team to do this as well? In other words, like you could come into Thailand where some similar issues exist. It's new. It's more. It's different nuances here and subtleties. But do you see that as a possibility?
1: Yeah. So a really good question. I think a lot of people try to build regional businesses in um, Southeast Asia and fail. So I think the most important thing to realize is actually that Indonesia is actually quite different than other uh, Southeast Asian countries. So at least in the earlier stage, a single market approach kind of makes sense because it's actually Indonesia in general is quite competitive and it's a pretty big country in general. However, I think having said that, I think in the next, who knows in, uh, Post-Series C, perhaps there is room for us to be able to replicate the model in other countries. But it does require heavy diligencing on the other countries because the behavior of the users, I mean, let alone regulatory issues, but also the behavior of the users, at least from our experience, is, is very, very different. So you need to be very, very ready to actually split out your product into different,
0: Agreed. Look, I like to make this point as often as possible. A lot of my listeners are in the United States and I want them to understand that, you know, China is a different story, but Indonesia, Malaysia, Vietnam, Singapore, Thailand, you know, Bangladesh, all these, all these countries, which from really far away may look similar are actually very different. Like you said, in behavior, in customs and in the way they look at financial services, they're all very different. You cannot just plug and play from one country into another. You know when they think about exactly. localization they just think i'll just change the language or the font and then i'm fine but it's not like that at all is that fair
1: exactly and i think the key difference is what we've seen is in purchase decision making it's very specific and nuanced but mm. actually if you, what we found is in thailand for example you know when someone chooses an investment product it's very aspiration driven versus in Indonesia, it's really more about risk and protecting from the future issues. So right. the reasons behind purchasing an investment product is super different. Yeah. So I think that will really, really drive how you would design a product. So we haven't seen, for example, any, you know, wealth tech companies, et cetera, succeed in being regional in Southeast Asia
0: as of yeah right neither have I that was one of the reasons why why I asked that question is there a community of founders in the sort of wealth management space that commiserate with each other do you know what I mean like do you talk to the teams and in, in not in Indonesia excuse me in Malaysia or in Singapore or in Thailand and just say I'm going through this thing and I don't know what to do or just like I just did this and it worked you may want to try this as well do you know what I mean is there a small community of people like that that do commiserate
1: so, yes, definitely. I think there's some really interesting startups in other countries and with very similar problems in Indonesia. I see a lot of parallels between Indonesia and the Philippines, by the way. I think it's interesting because if I if I actually could pick the another, Southeast, if I could pick what is the most similar to Indonesia, it would be Philippines. Really? Definitely. Why is that? Yes. So the the purchase decision-making is actually quite similar for whatever reason. I think that's been some very interesting learning and finding. And I think also culturally, uh, there's some similarities in terms of, for example, the decentralized kind of government system, very family-driven units when they make decisions, for example. So these are things that, we see are very similar, lot well third, like very social activities, very. so social media use and everything is quite similar as well. So there's some overlaps in that sense.
0: Got it. Do you see, I'll let you go in a minute because I know we've been on the phone for a long time, but I'm just really curious. Do you see a, what's the right word, like a crypto investment thing playing out in Indonesia the same way it's kind of started to bubble up in Thailand?
1: Yes, definitely. I mean, at Pulong, we do offer Bitcoin and Ethereum. And okay. I think uh, and big be, precisely because of that so right now there are actually more crypto users than stock markets or mutual funds combined mm. so it is already really bubbling up there is a very big user base and growth in mm. users in general now however the question is what happens when the asset class actually drops that's actually a question that we we don't know yet going forward and will be interesting to see right we what we need to figure out and i think something that we've been trying to answer is how sticky are these users when right. these users actually start right now they're making a lot of money so they're coming back very often but what happens actually when users start losing money are they going to stick around what what are the you know likelihoods of that that's kind of the questions we've been trying to answer
0: yeah so in my mind i feel like the velocity movement in bitcoin and ethereum is much faster than the velocity in stocks and bonds but i don't know that for a fact right it'll be interesting to see yeah i just don't know but it'll be interesting to see if that when that velocity is heading downwards again which it did back in 2017 what happens to those users right we don't know
1: whether they stick around or not and the other thing that's really important is the regulatory environment for sure so you know, a lot of these governments right now in Southeast Asia are trying to figure out what's the best way to actually regulate regu- crypto. Right. Because the in general, money laundering risks are much, much higher. So when I think the biggest barrier for crypto will be on the regulatory front and thinking about how that will take shape, because there's only one way, which is to make it stricter for them to be able to truly a block money laundering.
0: Right. It can't be a kind of
1: exactly. So and when investors start losing money as well, what how will regulators react? These are the risks that, you know, are very unforeseen and um, but very interesting for us to keep a watch on.
0: Yeah. Again, who's responsible in a decentralized world, right? Who takes who takes responsibility, who's accountable. interesting topics okay look I'll let you go I really appreciate you coming on and doing this today Claudia Colonis a founder of Pluong I love the name and by the way what does the name mean
1: oh yeah so Pluong means opportunity got it so yeah and I think it's quite self-explanatory I suppose
0: it is it is it is I just wanted to point that out so I looked it up before but I just wanted everyone else to know
1: thanks so much Michael I really appreciate you having me here and really appreciate you taking time
0: you're awesome thank you too